This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm still here. Uh, that is Dave. And I'm the Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film Diner. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. I get a date with Carol Heathrow. She is death. It's the diner. And what they really want most isn't on the menu. Come on. Eddie's given Elise a football quiz. If she fails, the marriage is off. And if she passes, it's two more days to the thing. Lurch. You're a virgin, aren't you? Technically. Come on. You miserable creature. It's a slice of life. Did you turn it to such a thing? Chris, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show since the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each Jerk. month we do a bonus episode over there, which this month is Minion Moskowitz, the the uh, the John Cassavetes film from 1971. Just to whet your appetite. Uh, okay. Yeah. I've never heard of it. Now, before we get to talking about this week's film, of course, we've taken a break here over the last couple of weeks of plot progression. There's a plot? <laughs> yeah, we have to advance the plot of right, our right. deep and rich fiction that we provide here each and every week with our sentient machine, so you and I stuck in the year 1982. Dave, where's this? where's our missing money? We're, we're, we're intaking a bunch of money from our arcade emporium that we've right. started here in 1982. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I feel like I'm trying to do the books here, and I'm granted not great at math. Right. There's no computers to help us. It's like on a ledger yeah. with an ink dip pen. Got it. Yeah. What would a it quill. have been around in 1980? <laughs> would there have been a personal computer in 1982? Uh, yeah. Sort of, right? I mean, what would you have been using? You would have been like, C, like DOS. I'd be in DOS. Yeah. Windows like is not command. out yet. Windows comes out in what, 95 or something. We had a computer in our house when I was in grade three or four. So that's mid 80s. 82 is early, man. Maybe not a computer. Yeah. Well, yeah, you would have been very rich, I think, if you had one uh, back at that time. My dad told me the loans he took for those computers, and it's fucking shocking. Shocking. <laughs> one of them cost 10 grand in like the late 80s. He I had know. to take- uh, Wild. Why do we complain so much? I mean, I can't afford a $1,000 computer, but think about that with inflation. You're the inflation guy. That's like- 15 grand? I don't know what that would be in today's dollars. If it actually cost $10,000 in 1982 money, then yeah, you're talking like 15 grand probably nowadays. Yeah, It's crazy. It's like a car. Anyways, something to keep an eye on. I don't know if it's D.D. Hess, DDS, the, uh, of course, the dentist that rents space out of our, right. uh, our space here too. So We have a dentist. Have, have we got any work done? I'm... Not sure where we are with the plot. You have they... lovely adult braces, I uh, think. Yeah. Is Invisalign out yet? I don't think I'm so. I'm going to do my trapper keeper here, and it's going to be great. You both make me want to spit. There's also one news story that I want to bring out, just how we have recorded our last few episodes. It's very interesting that we uploaded 
the Das Boot episode. Das Boot. And we had a very quick conversation about the career of Bruce Willis. Mm. And the day we published it is when the news broke that... He's actually sick. He actually is sick. It's something I did bring up in that episode that I'd heard rumors that that might be true. Well, it is true. The exact ailment is aphasia, which basically makes it hard for people to speak, uh, take on information, and to like do fine motor controls. So that is that is a thing. There's, I mean, there's so many actors, sadly, that are put on by. I mean, this is a human thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of us get sick, and some of us don't. But we were talking about somebody else. I mean, uh, Terry Garr, we talked about how she has MS. Oh, right. We haven't done an M- MJ Fox movie, but Michael J. Mm-hmm. Fox got MS. and Michael J. Fox doesn't have MS. He has uh, something else. Parkinson's. 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 So, I, uh, there was somebody else we covered. Anyways, it's kind of sad when you mm-hmm. have these debilitating diseases, but I don't know. It's acting. It's fine. Oh, yeah. Gene Hackman's uh, got dementia now, right? Alzheimer's or something. Yeah, and that's yeah. also the rumor about uh, jack nicholson as well right because he was signed up to do a, another movie here a couple years ago and then backed out at the last moment and that's kind of i mean they're what pretty people old. think because he hasn't been really seen in public for the last five or six years it's always sadder when they're younger i mean bruce willis isn't yeah. young per se but jack and gene had a full 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 career, career. yeah yeah uh, terry gar for example what a loss someone with that much talent would have to dis- take, take a step back michael j fox too and whatever your opinions are about him. I mean, he was a pretty big thing. We needed that Teen Wolf 3 to pair him and Jason Bateman together in a final face-off. We're going to talk about sequels in a little bit, because uh, there are too many of a Steve Gutenberg franchise. Uh, I, I read uh, uh, Frankie Munoz, you know, Malcolm. Remember there's yeah, yeah, a big Malcolm thing that he Munoz. lost his memory? I saw yes. a thing that he Apparently lied about that. that's not true, though. Yeah. He was just trying to yeah. avoid all the controversy of him not having a real career. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, this is my new favorite thing. Say what you will about Robert Pattinson. Sparkly chest. I kind of love Robert Pattinson in in one way because he he's very Dave-like and that he could not give less of a shit about fame. Like, he just fucking doesn't care. To the extent that he kind of readily admitted here just recently about how much he has lied in previous interviews. Like, he just made shit up for, like, the last 15 years. About so when people what? ask him questions, like about his like, personal life? Yeah, it's like, this is what I like, or these are, this is my backstory. Like, I forget what he said. Like, my mother put me in ballet at an early age. Like, nope, never did. <laughs> that never happened. But it's, like, in his, like, Wikipedia page and these places over here, because he kept repeating it. Lies. He just kept making stuff up. It's like, what's your opinion on this thing? It's like, I'm just going to make up a story for this interview. And then on this interview, I'll say something different. And then this interview, I'll say something different again. Because he didn't care. He's like, whatever. I don't know. I don't think that's not. I think it's caring a lot because you don't lie for things you don't care about. Also, I mean, there's a irony about calling people out on lying when you're an actor because acting is lying. But Wait until you hear about politicians, Dave. <laughs> waka waka. But it is interesting, like the idea of celebrity. You know, if you're doing a candid interview, if we became famous and someone was like, oh, how did you and Kyle meet? Uh, who gives a shit? But apparently that's what people want to know, right? As if it fills you out as a human being. I but- actually do think that is the Robert Pattinson thing. I think you, you've heard, I don't know how much you know about the, the interview circuit, but if you have a movie that comes out, you see those like behind the scenes videos, like the posters usually in the background, oh, yeah, the yeah, actor yeah. sitting yeah. in front of it. Like, we saw that Julia Roberts room. film that you liked. Yeah. Well, it's it's a hotel room. Right. And like you go through 15 to 20 interviews of like the new interviewer coming in, sitting down and they might redress the set a bit, but you're just sitting there for hours upon hours. Normally being asked the same exact question over and over what and over again. What are you wearing? Again. Oh no, we're not the women. 
Right. No. Ugh. But at a certain point, I can understand where people are just like, I don't fucking care. Like, no. here, this is my answer for you this time. Report that if you want. Well, that's the thing. Like, uh, who is it? Like, Robert De Niro doesn't give a shit, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't even do those interviews, at least for the better part of his uh, mature career. But going on and like making shit up is, I think, a sign of like Elizabeth Holmes shit. You know, there's yeah, a com- yeah. there's a little not sociopathy necessarily, but too much intent. Well, the exact opposite is the brutal honesty, because this is also why I love Harrison Ford interviews. He actually had it. I guess I don't know if this part is true, but I read that for the first part of his career, he had it in his contract that he would not do right. interviews. Right. I was gonna like say, I don't... Then he got to a certain point where he couldn't put that in his contract anymore just because he's not famous enough anymore to be able to write that into his contracts. Oh, okay. But I love when he goes on to like late night shows or is interviewed because you can just tell it's like, I don't want to really be here, <laughs> but I'm contractually obligated to be here. And my favorite question in recent years, you can find video of this of like, I forget if it's a Comic-Con or somewhere. Anyways, there's someone who asks them the question. It's like, uh, do you think like you're a force ghost in like the latest Star Wars movie? It's like, I played Han Solo. I don't give a shit. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's just a job for the him. Like, he doesn't care. Ghost. I love it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what that means. And I don't give a shit. I don't want to find out. Comic-Con? I don't know. I don't know if this will offend whatever listeners we might have, but I don't understand a certain... I'm a nerd, Cal. You mm-hmm. know this. I have a secret nerdiness, but dressing up and learning languages you got to draw a line somewhere well you know, yeah if you speak klingon you have to question some of your life choices true I enough think. i mean i love loving things as you know <laughs> this like i love getting obsessed by things and celebrating the fact that i love things at the same point i could not envision a reality if i met someone let's say it was harrison ford like, what is what are your theories on episode five and when this happened i'm like why would i ask him that question in it's a like million Galaxy years Quest, why right? would i ask him that question yeah. well Storytelling, we like we love movies because we love storytelling. But believing that these things are real is a completely different psychosis. And like we saw that in Galaxy Quest, right, where the nerds, the Star Trekkies, are like this, where, yeah. you know, like oh, we've got a layout of this ship. It's like the ship never existed. You fucking idiot! It was a TV show. But uh, <laughs> that's a thing, right? I, I don't yeah. Know. Uh. Well, I think there's that. Um, I forget what episode that was in, but I remember we read it. It was a Roger Ebert review, and he brought up the idea between fandom versus liking something Mm. and why and it's interesting how fandom has basically overtaken liking things i would say in in recent years because what fandom is is i get to tell you things but i don't actually want a conversation i Ah. just want to tell you these little bits of trivia and these things and the behind the scene things without actually engaging in any dialogue presumably liking something allows you to share that but you want the reciprocal uh, conversation back and forth but yeah yeah, the toxic sides of fandom is is bad yeah that's a great insight i've never you know it's always bothered me it's not like if i met harrison for i wouldn't necessarily be like oh well i completely rational human being because I, I think it's cool but uh, whenever i watch these videos of Beatlemania or like boy bands or girl bands when yeah. people are just fucking like they're crying you know like if you see michael jackson in his prime in those like cars and people are like kids are like weeping you know trying to touch his body that's fucking weird man <laughs> like i don't i don't know twilight we brought robert pattinson there's so many people that probably put glitter on their chest because they thought it mm-hmm. made them a vampire i mean that's <laughs> That level is so strange to me. Yeah, well, eh. you're a dead husk of a human. 
<laughs> so clearly Kyle's done this before. <laughs> I only did it once. I only did it once and it was for Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I just bought, no, I'm that, joking. No, but... <laughs> you know what? I bet. I bet I bet there's at least three wrestlers where you would uh, like literally pee yourself if they came to shake your hand. <laughs> I just don't know which generation. Hulk Hogan for sure. Well, he's proven to be a pretty big racist here yeah, <laughs> in recent years shit, so uh, but he does have 24 inch pythons and he did slam the 500 pound andre the giant the giant so I mean. i'd like i would like to get the actual circumference of his arm you know it's pretty big <laughs> yeah, 24 inches is pretty big he's probably a few pythons less than he was before in his prime he wouldn't even be able to slam a slim jim now okay so before we go into our break here then we should probably talk a little bit about our history with a couple of things First off, how much do you know about Barry Levinson, the director and writer of this movie? Well, you know, I don't follow these directors, but when I looked at his filmography, I've seen almost all of his movies, like all of his good movies. Um, mm -hmm. Hold on, I'm just going to pull it up here. So, for example, The Natural, right? Robert mm -hmm. Redford. That was movie. the one he did right after this, yeah. Good Morning Vietnam, right? Yep. Uh, Rain Man, Bugsy, and then Sleepers was kind of a big thing. I didn't really like Disclosure. Uh, and then it kind of... Falls down. It really does that, peter but, off. Yeah. It really does peter off. He did wag the dog, right? That's right. Wag the dog. Which I was... personally really love wag the dog. But then there's another movie called Envy that he does with Ben Stiller, which is legitimately one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my oh, entire Jack life. Oh, Jack Black. No, that's I bad. think it's very, very bad. <laughs> and there's another movie that's super bad too. Oh, uh, it's not super bad, but Man of the Year is not very good. That's another that? Robin Williams movie. Ugh. I just looked at the poster. Definitely skip that. I'm it's too basically critical. what if John Stewart became the president of the United States? Like that's uh, basically what that movie is. Stupid. And uh, it's not good. It's People not very love good. John Stewart. I've never actually watched Young Sherlock Holmes, which I think might be a miss. I think I need mm -hmm. to take a peek at that. I would. I would definitely say that the '80s were his heyday into the '90s, like yeah. Rain Man, kind of topping it off. Uh, I know Bugsy was well liked by the Academy, although I don't think it's very much like. I don't think people like that movie very much anymore. Or it's not held in very high esteem. That being said, I do like that's the, those are the movies that I think are going to stand the test of time. The Natural, Brain Man, etc. Have you ever heard of this movie before, Diana? No, no. I've been trying to rack my brain this week because I have. Like I've known of Diner for oh. a long time. And I don't know why I know Diner, <laughs> to be honest with you. I have a feeling it must have shown up on either one of my a favorite list. directors, like favorite movies of all time list, or perhaps when I was getting really into like the internet movie database when it first came online. Wow, like I would... you just, you didn't even say IMDb. You actually like, you actually named, you actually named the service. <laughs> Amazing. But I, but I always like to like click on actors and just go through like everything they've been in or this director, what is, what is all the things that they've directed. Right. And, and when uh, you were loving Steve Gutenberg, you're like, what is this? What's this my, diner? My Guten phase, <laughs> I was like, what else has he been in? Yes, he's been in six Police Academy movies, but what else has he done with his life? <laughs> I got, yeah, I've known of Diner. I've known of Diner. Never seen Diner, but I'm I sure not, of yeah. Diner. I'm just like debating in my mind whether there's another movie with a similar name and that's what we're confusing this. But I mean, diners appear in most American films anyway. Well, so. I mean, there's definitely a bunch of diner movies. Like there's Alice, uh, who's uh, that's the Scorsese movie, and she's mm -hmm. like a diner operator. Mm -hmm. The other big one actually came out in 1982, although I don't know if we'll have time to watch it this year, is uh, the Robert Altman movie, which is uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime. Mm, no. Which again, it's our share and some other people and takes place in a diner. Mm. 
Uh, Greece has a diner scene. Yeah. <laughs> the diners are, are big in America. They like, are. They I, are. I, are you a diner? Like not the movie diner, but just the, the physical feature. Are you a diner fan? No, I think they're gross. I, I've oh, been in man. a lot of diners, right? I love diners. Especially, Steve. you know. I love diners. Yeah, of course you do. It's so gross. I mean, not that we've watched this movie yet, but when I was watching this movie, I, uh, you know, there's reminiscence because uh, I've been in a lot of diners, especially if you're drinking and partying, you end up mm -hmm. in places that are going to be open up at, at odd hours. But, you know, Hal and I have become quite shishi and uh, eating fucking broken green eggs and uh, right greasy shit in the mean? middle of the morning. It's disgusting. Shit coffee that tastes like cigarette ash. Garbage. Bring on the greasy food and bad coffee, Dave, because it's totally 100% my jam. I, uh, I don't know what it is. I like if I'm ever- Country living, man. This is, I why I'm surprised you didn't like Tulane Blacktop. It's in your DNA. This is uh, this world of just nothingness, <laughs> right. right? This is the best we could do. There, there's something about it that I just like, you know, there early in the morning, having my hash browns with eggs and toast. And there's just something magical about that comfort food. There's actually a great diner here in Calgary called Galaxy Diner that I'm a super huge oh, fan of. Galaxy. Which is only open for a short period of time. It's not like this movie where it's open like super late yeah, or anything. Yeah. You have to be there like between 5 and 11 in the morning and then they close down. Yeah, but yeah. it's so good. It's so there, great. Well, see, that you're, you're talking about two different things. You're talking about sort of a bougie, like generational diner where it's like thematic. This kind of diner was like the one that, Humpty's, what a piece of shit that place well, was. Well, yeah, I'm not talking but about like Humpty's or level. like a Smitty's or something yeah, like that. But that's but this level because they're open at least, you know, 18 hours a day. I don't know if they close at like two anymore, but you know, Humpty's, you could go in the middle oh, yeah. of the fucking night there and it was garbage. A... That's where, that's where they closed. It's, you probably there's, got there's sick. There's one called, uh, is it Humpty's the one that had the moons over my hammy? Is that I the? Know. I don't know. I was usually not of right mind. I got violent <laughs> diarrhea from eating there one night. So just. Oh, well, we didn't do well at A&W either. We went to go watch that other oh, movie. So. Right. We, got, we both got really bad food poisoning from going there. So I've been back that, since. Dave? Yeah. So it's not really a diner. It's just uh, poor hygiene. Can, uh, can I get your onion rings and then have to shit for the next three days? <laughs> <laughs> Just constantly? It's probably somebody who took a shit and then prepped our onion rings. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a right. whole other problem. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we should jump into this movie here then. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. Thanks some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking about Diner. You know, if you just get those sausage links, just a little bit of runniness in the egg, you dip them in there put a little bit of salt on there. That is, mwah, that is perfection. I'm, perfection. I'm Marty gagging. You know what though? When you describe it that way, there are good food places that will make that good. Just not a diner. Yeah. <laughs> I want to roll up on like the fanciest French diner. It's like, can you give me a plate of grease, please? Well, that's why that's they really call them, what I want. That's why they call them boulangeries or like uh, patisseries. They don't call them fucking diners. Yeah. <laughs> is this a diner? Yes, but we're pretentious about it. Well, you know, some pretension is important if it's not going to make you throw up. Plus, you can have good uh, coffee there. Kyle, well, I'm all about coffee. I love yeah, coffee. You, well, yeah, yeah. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> oh, you can get those what beans, but they'll be a little bit too greasy. Or you can get these beans, and they're only $50 a bag. It's a great deal. I'm like, I'm not spending $50 I push you on to a Costco. bag of beans. I pushed you to Costco. That's a good value. That's a good value. They're not great coffee beans, but for 15 bucks a kilo, you can't really go wrong. 
You know, Kyle Davers the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. You know, this week, I get to talk to you about ATB, specifically ATB Cares. So, Dave, I don't know, are you looking for a way to give back? No. Well, ATB Cares makes it easy for all Albertans to support the causes they care about. Donate to your favorite charity through ATB Cares, and ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to an eligible Albertan charity. To learn more and donate, you can visit atbcares.com. Sorry, I'll change my answer to yes. Is that more palatable? Yeah. Yeah, I'll edit that in in post, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, Our other sponsor, we got a cool one. It's Northwest Fest, the International Documentary Festival. Before you jump into Northwest Fest, Dave, I know I just totally cut you off. No, it's good. Um, I'm used to it. I'm used to it's it. hilarious <laughs> because two weeks ago I talked about Northwest Fest and you tried to stop me. You really tried to stop me from perjuring myself, basically, <laughs> which is like I was like, you know, there's going to be like probably a discount code because you don't have the, 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 the stuff to talk about yet. Totally wrong. That's not happening. And you said, don't post that because you're going to get in trouble. So did you post it? Right? <laughs> oh yeah, it's in the episode. You can go and say it. it's like there probably will be like a discount code we're gonna offer. No. Well let's find out. Let's find out, okay. Cal, because I'm gonna read this copy and we'll see if you are correct. <laughs> the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival running in cinema, that's in all caps. I'm presuming that means you can go see it with your butt in the seat. It's running from May 6th to the 14th. Oh, and it has an online portion from May 5th to the 15th. A nice. One day delay. Interesting. NWF is thrilled to finally be able to bring back the festival to Metro Cinema this year with an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs and a few fun surprises. This year's festival is a hybrid affair, Kyle, not Hydra. Nice. With over 20 films screening at Metro Cinema, including the acclaimed Nick Cave music doc, This mm. Much I Know to Be True. Along with, is Nick Cave still alive? Along with so. dozens of feature and short film screenings online. Award-winning filmmaker Alexandre O'Philippe will also be in town to present his filmmaking masterclass. We should go to that. We should make mm-hmm. a film. This event will be open to the public and is an absolute must for anyone who's ever dreamed of making their own film. Check out the full Northwest Fest film lineup and purchase all-access passes or single tickets at northwestfest.ca. Strange, Kyle. I did not see any mention of any type of coupon code or benefit brought to you through our relationship. Uh, We are not responsible for any of that uh, recompense coming your way. We're so sorry for giving you the wrong information. But I like um, how you're using the... the, uh, you know, uh, plural, the uh, plural there, we. I didn't promise anything. <laughs> you, I Kyle Marshall. I didn't promise jack shit, Kyle. This is all on you. <laughs> you reimburse them the 20%. <laughs> all right, Dave, we are back. We just finished watching the movie Diner. Um, so if you had to, if someone came to you and was like, Dave, what's this movie Diner about? How would you describe first just the plot? Of Diner. The plot. There's a plot. A plot. Right. This is a movie about uh, four assholes, and uh, that's about it. I think there's five, actually, but yeah. wh- whatever. Four and a half. <laughs> um, it's about four and a half guys broing out in 1959. I was going to quip that this is basically, what was that other movie we watched, 71? 1942? 
Oh, uh, um, 1821. Uh, summer of 42. Summer this of 42? is basically like if the kids in summer of 42 grew up and moved into a larger city. Yeah, technically, yeah, technically kind of is, right? Mm. <laughs> what did you think of the movie, Dave? Oh, shit. I, uh, well, okay, I, I will put this asterisk. It's not shit like, yes, Giorgio. I just didn't mm -hmm. like it because it's chauvinistic, it's irritating, but also tries to be Hollywood in that there are no consequences for anybody involved for all their douchebaggery. Uh, and so it's exhausting. Just to break this down, Joe, Dave, yeah. just to push back a little bit here, because sure. sometimes I get criticism Oops. for not uh, standing up to your bold claims. Oh, about who's movies. criticizing? Yeah, great. Doesn't matter, but there's sometimes people. <laughs> abstractly, right. Abstractly. <laughs> Direct messages to my phone being like, you should have said this. And I was like, I was too Stand scared Dave's going to whip me. He's, he tells me all the time he's going to come over to my house and beat me up. More perjury. Yeah. Is it not okay to have bad people or asshole people do asshole things in a film? What is wrong if a character is written that way to just be an asshole inside of a film? No, that's, Why that's is not, that in itself bad? That's not bad. What's bad for me is losing a moral conscience about what bad means. So for example, in this film, each of the characters has a serious character flaw, if not many, which in itself is the root of all drama. But when you end a film where everybody's taking picture and smiling going, you know what? It didn't matter because we're all going to be fucking happy anyways. That's dumb. That is a waste mm -hmm. of... Uh, that's a waste of energy and also sends this Americana message that no matter what you do, as long as you come out on top with more money than you started with, you made it. And I think that's what's awful about it. I, I tried to give this a chance in the sense that, you know, I'm sitting through it. Some of the performances are fine. Um, it's shot okay. The best scene is that, again, it's not a juxtaposition, but when they have the, the couple arguing in the, uh, in the sound booth and then they have the movie mm. in front with the window. I mean, oh, yeah, that stuff cool. is beautiful. So, it's not a poorly constructed film. But by the end, it just, it was wearing me out, man. You know, I was thinking at least if there's some comeuppance because it's kind of building that way and there wasn't. Alan Barkin's great. Mickey, Mickey Rourke gets to punch a guy in the gut though. So there uh, is... Yeah, stupid. Mickey Rourke's fascinating. Ellen Barkman's really good in this. I liked her. And we talked on the video last week how you were saying it's not actors' fault if they're given bad material, that they're bad in movies. This proves the opposite. Ellen Barkin is given a paper-thin character and she's mm -hmm. fucking great in this, right? It doesn't matter what the writing is. A good actor just appears well in a film. Like a good film actor appears well in a film. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I want to actually... I was going to bring this up later but i'll do it now and then i'll tell you what my impressions oh, are yeah i just movie. went off i just yeah i was struck by the fact like oh how much casting really does influence a film because you can do so much shorthand and i know that for most of these people this is like their first film or like their second film that they ever did i just wanted to point out specifically paul reiser in this movie as soon as paul reiser starts talking he's like oh he's a fast talking asshole who makes shit up <laughs> Like it's, it's, there's so much shorthand in that. That's like, you don't really even have to do much. It's like, I totally understand what your character is where when you have more like blank slate characters, like, um, the Tim Daly character in this movie, it's like, I don't really know anything about you. Like, no. What are you? What, what, what are your goals? Time. What do yeah. you want? Like, there's just nothing there for me. And that dovetails into kind of what my thoughts are. I kind of wish I didn't know how much critics loved this movie at the time because i think it really impacted my impressions of this movie i was coming in this thinking oh this is gonna like blow your be so emotionally off. changing right. for me or something like that like, i was gonna get something a lot out of this and i ended up being fairly disappointed in this movie overall 
And I was trying to figure out why. And I think I've hit on what it is for me because there's movies like, oh God, like The Big Chill or Terms of Endearment. Or even if you look at the Before series where it's like, is there a plot? Kind of. But like, that's really not the point. It's about the characters coming together and talking and like interacting. And that's where the drama flows from. The idea of this movie is not what I have the issue with. The the issue I think I have is that outside of maybe one of them, one or two of them, these characters are nothing. Like there's nothing to these characters that makes me want to watch them win or lose really at the end of the day they're just kind of there that i was just wanting something more it's like i'm not really being pulled through this narrative in any conceivable way a couple of scenes i thought were maybe a little bit humorous or like well constructed or well shot this is a pretty short movie it's an hour and 45 minutes and literally an hour in i was like okay i think i kind of got it like i kind of get what this movie is we can wrap this up now i don't need another 40 minutes to kind of get get to the end of this which is bad because i do like most of the actors in this movie too like it's not like they're doing a bad job necessarily it's just like it kind of all comes up to to nothing for me i think we also have to be fair in one aspect we bring this up occasionally but maybe not enough when we talk about a, a film year that is a long time ago right this was 40 years ago 1982 you know critics coming at this are coming at that contemporaneously So they've seen things beforehand, but the next 40 years have not happened yet. And for us, those 40 years have elapsed. And so all I can see is like, well, this movie has been done a lot better by Mm. a bunch of better directors and writers since 1982. So for sure, maybe, maybe in a 1982 context coming into this, it'd be like, oh, this is cool. Someone's doing kind of a Robert Altman thing, but coming at it from a different point of view cool let's give it high marks and for me i'm like those movies i already mentioned i think do this better i don't know what you have in store for me if pauline kale loved this movie i suspect she she wouldn't oh she loved it she loved it yeah so here's the thing i i got this feeling summer 42 is like this the last picture show is like this these are uh therapeutic letters written contextually to people who will understand them so in other words if the large majority of film critics in 1982 are uh, middle-aged white men and they're watching a movie reminiscing about a past they probably shared sure. then this is going to evoke a lot of feelings helen and i helen was watching this really trashy tv show with nick lachey <laughs> about couples fucking other couples and whatever why is that so endearing to some people because i think it opens up this conversation of what some people really think they're experiencing so like the marriage dynamic and you know yeah. uh, Daniel Stern's whole little soliloquy about going home and not having anything to talk about. A lot of people are in relationships sure. like that and they're gonna be like crying. So like, this is, this is so real, man. And it's not real for me. And so I don't give a shit. You know, I, I think you can well, do okay, different again. things with that, right? The record scene, I saw a letterbox review and they're like, when Daniel Stern's getting so sad about the records, man, that was so meaningful and impactful to me. I'm like, yeah, it, it does reflect. I've done dumb shit like that. But then what happens after that? And that's what I want to see in a in a film of this nature. I don't want just somebody yelling at his wife because he's an anal retentive neurotic prick. I want to get the follow. And the follow is that she the next day is going to sleep with Mickey Rourke. I mean, that's paper thin writing. It's fucking so cheesy. To be fair, I'd have sex with Mickey Rourke. I, th- I think that's the issue is that there's no follow through with this, right? It's one thing to have that freak out from Daniel Stern over the records. I 100% think that 
has happened and probably still happens. Of course. Maybe not with records, but with something, whatever. Yeah. Fill in video games or whatever you want to talk about. But I think when we get to the end where that all kind of just fades away and we're absolved and it's like, well, you know, it was 59. Yay. And then exactly. fade to black. It does feel cheap or uh, unexamined empty. i think yeah. is the, is, 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 it doesn't look examined that the setup is there it's like okay cool okay let's explore this relationship he enjoys hanging out with his male friends more than he likes hanging out with his his female wife okay let's explore that but i don't really feel i think the difference between you know what it is do, do you watch like family guy or american dad you know the seth MacFarlane shows or have no. ever watched an episode yeah i've watched them my frustration with those those shows, and I will sometimes put them on if I'm just like, I can take no brain matter right now. I just need something that is on. Yeah. <laughs> but what frustrates me about those shows the vast majority of the time is that there's actually no jokes that happen. All this is a reference to something else where it's like, oh, I know that reference and therefore... I might laugh as a response to that, but there actually is not a joke that is happening in the episode. And this movie is kind of doing the same thing. It's like, oh, this is a setup to a dramatic thing that could happen. But then the, the dramatic thing never actually happens. It is. I mean, I, I don't I don't know how old Barry Levinson is because he wrote it. It is. We are we are recording this on his 80th birthday. So he's he's already 40 at this point and he's yeah. got a career i'm sure otherwise i haven't actually looked him up yet but this feels like somebody who doesn't have a lot of perspective reflecting on his own past yet you know there like you brought up there's a setup there is awareness of all these um problems right there's a reflection of perhaps his peer group and uh dramatization of actual real life nuances that ending is is such a letdown you're asking me just a few minutes ago you know why can't we have bad cruel bad people in a mo movie i'm like yeah we should you know that's fine these are not likable characters there's a single one of them who has some type of uh, charm i mean people liked mickey rourke in this movie we should talk about the act i thought everybody sucked in this i i did mm. not i did not buy into any of it yeah mickey rourke is charming in a flirtatious way he's not a good actor Right? He's not embodying any depth in this. He's just skidding through it with a smirk on his face. Kevin Bacon looked like he was having a fucking seizure the whole movie. I didn't understand why he was in it. You, you know the reason behind that? No. I found out by watching a behind-the-scenes documentary on YouTube this morning. No. Uh, for most of his scenes, he was running 103-degree fever. Okay, that makes <laughs> so sense. So he's like almost dying while he's filming this movie. Right? I mean, if we've seen other Kevin Bacon movies, he doesn't even look like a human being in this. I, but it makes sense. If he's sick... <laughs> Right? And he's just trying yeah. to fight through his moments. I mean, that makes a lot more sense to me because he's a better actor than what we saw in this yeah. film. Daniel Stern's fine, but you know, with the side characters, Gutenberg, it's it's kind of thin. And then what was that the main the quote unquote main Tim Daly. Tim Daly's awful. He's like a block of wood. I didn't understand. Yeah, I I don't know. I would I would push back up on a few things you're saying. I don't think they're awful. I think they're fine. Like I'm I wouldn't argue that there's like great acting going right, on here, fine. but there's Maybe like okay, like improv. That's why it sounds a bit like most of this was like some of it was written down and then he just let them go without uh, asking for cut. He, this is also his first movie, so he didn't actually realize how to make a movie. He's how very upfront by that. Yeah. You can kind of tell, I think, in some cases that this he doesn't really know what he's doing. And I don't even care about the likability quotient of it. I've watched and even loved certain movies where I think that the main character is awful. I think what I keep coming back to is like, have that awful character. Have them be the main character if you want. I just need there to be more examination than what this movie wants yeah. to do. It is just like, here's a set of things that are happening. Let's wrap up the movie. And I guess I just wanted something more.
I was watching something else recently and the the ending is the most disappointing part. I mean, I didn't turn it off. I didn't really check the runtime until the last 10 minutes. I um as soon as I knew where this was going, you know, you get this sense about the last 10 minutes that nothing's going to come. They were in prison because Kevin Bacon's character is so insane. I mean, they bring up this uh, aggressive alcoholism and then it's nothing. They don't care. Yeah. They bring up marital strife and then it's nothing. nothing. They don't care. They bring up the guy, uh, well, infidelity. The other big thing is like he, he's, he owes that guy money and then his and then somebody just comes, comes and in and pays yeah. for it. It's like, the well, deuce like, X shit, right? It's like- Yeah, I know. It's like, it's like it's some angel coming in and like do, doing away and, with any of the drama. But. And then at least if that guy's a gangster and it's like something that's one thing, but he's like, come and work for me for free at a construction site. You're like, why? What? What is this? Nothing's earned here. It's, it's frustrating at the end. I, the only part, honestly, that I started having some expectation of this film was those couple of dramatic moments when Kevin Bacon finally loses his mind. Mickey Rourke owes the money, fails all his gambling debts. And Daniel Stern gets into a fight with his wife. And I'm like, wow, like you said, here's the setup. Finally, some payoff. We've waited an hour. You know, everything's going to blow up in their face. And then uh, Tim Daly goes to a strip car bar. He becomes a blues pianist out of no yeah. fucking wear, rocking. Every, everybody loves him. Yeah. And then Mickey Rourke decides he can't sleep with his best Which friend's is, wife. And you're like, is that a moral redemption? It's like, what the fuck's going on with this? It's the, it's the film version of basically of like, you know, the prostitute paid me at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. And then they wrote a movie about it. It's like, yeah, I went and played piano at a, at a strip club and everyone loved it. It's so like- weird mm, i don't know <laughs> I, don't, I don't know even if these are based on you know even if this stuff happened to barry levinson right i, mm. I don't know i'm not going to discount the madness of true human reality and experience uh, it doesn't make for a good good film well here's the opinion. thing i i hate doing this but i feel they should never have left the diner yeah that's 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 my 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 notes i would give it's like i think it's one thing when you actually see the characters going and doing this thing, it's a far different thing is if the whole thing was different characters in and out of the booth or like moving around, you can block it very interestingly, telling them these stories and being like, did that actually happen? Or are they like goosing this a little bit behind there and kind of bullshitting each other? I realize that probably would work better as a play, but I think you could make that work where it's, you're only in the diner going between different booths and, and examining that. Yeah, sounds is it like a Jim Jarmusch movie? Yeah, yeah. But you know, 100%. like you know, what I like about that idea. You know, it would make this film runtime maybe it would be maybe it's a short film at that point. Yeah. But then you could truly make it. I mean, uh, and the other review I read about this afterwards because I was kind of upset and I just need to understand why this has maintained some notoriety in the critic circles is how about how dialogue driven and all of a sudden I'm like it's not really the like you said the some of the best dialogue scenes are when they're interchanging the improv in the beginning when yes. the four buddy five buddies are sitting in there making fun of each other how uh paul rises the, the roast beef sandwich scene roast but, i love yeah, yeah roast beef sandwich watching the guy eat the left side of the menu like stuff like that is great right there's some fun in it but as a whole experience, it's it's just, uh, you know, a movie I've been thinking about, we sadly spent some part of two and a half hours uh, watching Death on the Nile. With Ken I'm done with Kenneth Branagh. I mean, he's <laughs> fucking awful. Uh -huh. um, because, uh, have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. So, there's a 10 minute opening sequence about a fake story about his mustache. That opening Doesn't make sequence any is sense. so stupid. Doesn't yeah. play into the movie at all. No. And you can't grow a mustache on a facial scarf from no, a grenade. No, you can't. Uh, secondly, um, the ending, it's an Agatha Christie book. It's supposed to be a murder mystery, but everything's like, oh, well, I happen to know we'll all the, the shit. And, yeah. But so it's it's the same kind of cheap writing. There's something, there's so many misses. And I I just wish in our rewrite mode, 
that we could just take that, yeah, one extra step, push a little deep, maybe eliminate two of the characters in this mm. and just kind of dig it. Like, even if you want to focus on Steve Gutenberg needing to quiz his wife to get right. married, as dumb, as irritating, as it's actually quite fascinating to like think about this horrible human being who's so stuck in this one clo- like closet. I mean, that's a loaded term now, but one little uh, cubby and, and he's going to get married. We never see her face, which I think is actually kind of a fascinating dynamic they mm-hmm. didn't play with at all. This imaginary wife he's going to marry, uh, a woman. And that's like a three minute segment. I mean, it's a built up through the whole movie on yeah. a, as a side conversation and then it's over. It's weird. I didn't... I didn't get it. The amount of stuff you don't get could fill the Nile. I, I, I think I would have forgiven this movie a lot had the ending really stuck the landing. Like, had they had to face consequences for the choices that they made. I know this is a little bit pat, but whatever. If the realization was like, oh, like her knowing baseball trivia isn't the most important thing in this no. relationship. There's something uh, more. Football. Football. Or football, whatever. Football. Uh, then it was like, okay, at least then, fine. You're, you're doing something. It's like, oh, maybe... I, I've discovered that uh, my true calling is music. And this guy's like, maybe I shouldn't do uh, right. bets that I can't pay back or whatever it is. Like what, each of them have these realizations that like, this is what I have to do to go from being a kid to being an adult. Like there's that threshold that they're crossing. I would have been like, okay, like maybe not every scene worked for me, but at least there is this payoff at the end. And it just felt like, no, we're just not going to do anything here besides like just the bare minimum. You know what? I get the feeling that, I, and again, we're we're looking at, you know, writing stuff. And so, it's not a sequential thing. It's not something we have any right to critique. But it does feel like when he got to the part of the sort of reckoning. So, all the storylines come together at like that hour and 30 mark where Daniel Stern's in a position to watch his wife cheat on him. Mickey works in a position where someone's going to kill him for his gambling debts. Kevin Bacon should be going to an asylum. Right. Uh, you know, all this stuff's happening. And then they chickened out. You can tell almost like they were thinking about taking that to its natural conclusion and they just didn't want to go there. And I think that that's what makes this film so upsetting is that they actually do a reasonable job. It's like when we watch E.T., that first hour, you're like, ah, you know, it's taking its time. It's this old fashioned thing. But that last, you know, hour or whatever, 10 minutes, phenomenal, it fucking blows you out of the water. This is a movie where, yeah, they chickened out. It's like they didn't make the jump and you just left there wondering why you even spent an hour and 40 minutes watching this thing. In fact, know what they should have done, Dave? Because I, I know you love this this uh, trope. Is they really should have had their pictures with some text at the bottom of it. Just to explain <laughs> a little bit more about what happened in their life. It's like Steve Gutenberg became the president. Well, it would have <laughs> said, after this, uh, Steve Gutenberg enrolled in a police academy. <laughs> police academy, yeah, yeah. And Paul Reiser decided to be an asshole and, uh, and uh, trap people on an be alien spaceship. <laughs> become completely mad about his wife. Uh, I was going to say, uh, yeah, tried to infect a bunch of his crewmates with aliens. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I, Can I lost just tell my you, respect for Paul Reiser. We're going to get into this in a moment, but uh, that's the thing. Paul Reiser could have dozens and dozens of other roles. His role in Aliens makes me so angry yeah. about how awful he is. That's like, I always, anytime he shows up on campus, like, you sold out humanity. Yeah, exactly. I don't like you. <laughs> that's like, uh, after I watched Event Horizon which is a fucking dark movie. I can never like Sam Neill again because he's the devil. <laughs> yeah. He's so good in it because he yeah, is the yeah. devil. I'm like, oh, I can't trust this guy because he's disgusting. It's not about him. He's like New Zealandness <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. I mean, he was great in Jurassic Park. Why do you I hate his? him now? Because of Event Horizon. Paul Reiser too. He's pretty funny in this, right? And yeah, then yeah, yeah. he's about to destroy humanity and kill Sigourney Weaver. So fuck that guy. Fuck you. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so let's do some backstory here then. This movie opened up on March 2nd, 1982. Uh, it is currently rated 3.5 on Letterboxd out of 5, 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. It has an 82 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, from 43 critics, it has a 93%, and from 5,000 plus users, it has a 78%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. In Canada, there doesn't seem to be a place to stream it. Its budget was $5 million, and it would go on to make $14.1 million at the box office, which, adjusted for inflation, would be like something making $41 million today. Its plot description is a group of college-age buddies struggle with their imminent passage into adulthood in 1959 Baltimore. Is this the wire that's set in Baltimore? Yes. Is that the other one? Yeah. I was surprised it's Baltimore. I thought it'd be Indianapolis. I mean, the guy's obsessed with the Colts. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Some weird shit. I think on. it's um unless the Colts weren't in Indianapolis yet. I don't like NFL. I don't even know why they call it football. The fuck's wrong with Americans? You don't use your Dave, feet. We don't have time to like. You don't use your feet. <laughs> get into that. I think uh, John Wilder's also sets all of his stuff in Baltimore too. So, mm-hmm. Dave, it is time to play everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that tag. tag. This is, of course, when I don my favorite game show host blazer. I have a long microphone that Bob Barker likes to use, and this is the thing. When a movie goes to movie theaters, there's usually a poster of it up on the wall to entice people to come and watch it. And they have what's called the tagline, a little sentence that's at the top or the bottom usually that kind of describes the movie. And it's like, oh, my God, with that tagline, I need to see this movie. Dave, one of these that I'm going to read to you is the real tagline that appeared on the poster for Diner. The other two are made completely up by me, completely original. Um, And so you have to guess which one is the correct one. So, was the tagline to diner, was it, suddenly, life was more than french fries, gravy, and girls? Was it, what's so good about growing up? Or is it, drama with a side of comedy? (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna gonna go with one, but I'm scared it's three, but I'm gonna go with one. You are correct. It okay. is number one. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, it's almost too obvious that that's what it mm-hmm. is because it's just a weird phrase. Yeah. But uh, well, as soon as you said, I was like, they do order fries and gravy every time yeah. they're in there. Was my favorite thing to order too. Yeah, fries and gravy is good. It's great. You're right. Yeah. This movie stars Steve Gutenberg as Eddie, Mickey Rourke as Boogie, Kevin Bacon as Fenwick, Daniel Stern as Shrevey, Tim Daly as Billy, Paul Reiser as Modell, and Ellen Barkin as Beth. I think we need to spend a little bit of time here because that is a lot of actors that do go on to important or big or popular things. Yeah, let's go from bottom to top here, actually. So Ellen Barkin, what do you know about Ellen Barkin? Well, to be honest, I I watched this movie last night. I've only been able to look up three of these and Ellen Barkin's Mm. at the bottom, so I haven't looked at her yet. I don't know why she didn't have a bigger career than she did. I suspect she doesn't have the necessarily the pretty face she's like almost like aggressively attractive she's i mean not to reduce everything to looks i personally think she became more beautiful when she got into her 40s and 50s i think she's stunning i think she's stunning she's a great actress and she has that like even in this film she's supposed to be this sort of weak passive wife but she's like kind of feral 
and I love it. Mm-hmm. She's great in this movie, uh, but I don't know much about her yet, so I'll have to write it up later. Do you have any We sense? saw her in Drop Dead Gorgeous, we should point out. She mm-hmm. was uh, in that. And of course, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, she's in that movie. Of course, we have uh, Paul Reiser. We've already discussed his uh, role in Alien. I mean, he, I mean, Mad About You is probably... Yeah. The His more cultural thing. relevance, I don't know. For I didn't actually watch age. it. Yeah, I, I didn't actually watch it growing up. It was the the sitcom that was like whatever, like newlyweds trying to deal with marriage. What does that mean? I'm gonna watch Perfect Strangers, two wacky people trying Bell to live Bartok together. Moose. I know. No, that was a good. Show. Doing the happy dance. So that <laughs> is my. That is what I need to see. But um, he, I will, I will just point this out. I think Paul Reiser does a great performance in Whiplash. Hmm. He's the He's the father of um, the uh, drummer Ellen, guy. Uh, oh, Whiplash is in... Oh, sorry. I was thinking about Whip It. Whiplash, yeah. Whiplash is a good movie. I still get stressed mm-hmm. out thinking about that film. Oh, super stressed. No. Yeah, it's... You're dragging. If you've ever had any type of like mentor aggression against you, that is not a fun watch. No, it's trauma. <laughs> to sit through. Or Asian parents. Um, Tim Daly. I, this is the one person I don't actually know too much. I don't even know if I've seen another thing with Tim Daly in it. It says he was... On The Sopranos, and he was nominated for an oh, Emmy. There we go. <laughs> I, I, I guess he was in The Sopranos. I didn't even realize he was in The Sopranos. So Daniel Stern, I mean, Home Alone has to be the big thing that people are going to know him for. Yeah, City Slickers. City Slickers. He's the voice in The Wonder Years. Like He's That's the narrator right. in The Wonder Years. What's well, interesting, because he didn't really have as big of a career as I thought, because he's pretty well known. I mean, he has a very specific shtick in a face, and Home Alone is, yeah, yeah it's like transcendent in terms of its position in uh, comedy you can still watch it holds up really well um, apparently he's a bronze sculptor right now which what? i think is fascinating yeah so that's what he does he's not really acting that actively and uh, apparently yeah. he's known as a sculptor uh, works that's in bronze. wild yeah pretty interesting right. does he do the macaulay culkin face did he bronze that or <laughs> <laughs> i we watch that every year now because emerson gets the jokes every year more and more as his mm-hmm. you know brain that turns on and it's such an amazing thing because he's never watched bugs bunny or any of these slapstick cartoons mm-hmm. where all of these stunts are based on and yeah, he dies awful father not it's, to show him that stuff uh, oh well i tried and it's just too old i, I should try again actually he I think he appreciates slapstick now, but fuck, some of those stunts, even like I've watched that movie hundreds of times and I'm like, oh my God. It's the, the stuff <laughs> around the nail one because I've actually uh, done that in my life uh, and it's like, that is not fun <laughs> to do that. It hurts so much. It's uh, a good movie. Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, of course, there's the whole game, like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Nice. I unabashedly love Kevin Bacon yeah. and pretty much everything he does, but his career is super fascinating. I watched this interview with him years ago that he had to make this choice kind of early in his career, like by the mid eighties, because he was like, listen, can't be the footloose. <laughs> well, yeah, he like right after footloose because outside of footloose and what, like hollow man in the early two thousands, like he very rarely is like the leading man yeah, in right. his movies. He's usually a supporting actor or shows up for like one scene and then leaves, which is, again is why that game works so well. Cause he's been in a bunch of things as like in just one scene. He just drops mics all over the place. Yeah. This could be partly him like making a story that fits the narrative, but he says and claims he came to this realization kind of after footloose that there was him and there was all these other actors. And he realized, like, listen, I'm always going to be the third choice 
on these call lists. I'm not as handsome as Tom Cruise is. So those roles I'm going out for, I'm just not going to get. Tom Cruise is going to get those roles. I'm not the action star like Bruce Willis is. Bruce Willis is going to get those roles. I'm not as funny as Michael J. Fox is. So Michael J. Fox is going to get those roles. And I'm not as good of an actor as what Tom Hanks is. So I'm not going to get those roles. So he's always like third or fourth going to be picked. So he made this conscious decision to be like, okay, so what can I do if I want to have longevity in my career? I'm going to lean into the weird and just go and weird character actor, come in for one or two scenes and just continually get jobs. And yeah, maybe occasionally get a lead role, but by and large, I'm just going to show up and be like that supporting actor. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what has made his career go for like the next 40 plus years, which is interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, again, yeah. Is it justification or is just how it played out? doesn't matter. He's... He's great. I think the part that is true, like I, the people that are all his same age, like I just mentioned there, like yes. you're kind of right. If they're going up for the same role, yeah, I'm going to cast Tom Hanks for this or Tom Cruise for this. Yeah. You just kind of are. Yeah. If you're the same age as the two Toms, that's that's a problem. And we all know that Tom Cruise will never die. But I mean, he's good. I, I like him. Uh, I grew up with Flightliners. <laughs> right. I love Tremors, actually. I'm Tremors an is great. For the first Tremors. Oh, the first Tremors, not the director video stuff, but the first one well, is great. I never watched any of the sequels. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about Dune. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now that now that I've read Dune and like, of course, engaged with it, it's like, that is entirely what that movie is. Someone yeah. read Dune and was like, how can I make Dune an action movie what, what thing? If, what if this happened in wherever, Arizona or yeah, Utah? in Arizona. Fuck, yeah. I did grow up with uh, Tremors too, apparently. How would I remember that? Kevin Bacon is also in the very first Friday the 13th movie. He's like one of the first people who gets killed. Uh, and it's a terrible movie. I hate that movie. It's a bad movie. Come at me, horror fans. I, I really don't like that movie. Yeah, I, I, I will say something that might upset some viewers, uh, listeners. I'm not a big fan of Footloose, frankly. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. Oh, I love Footloose. Yeah, I you do would. love Footloose. Yeah. It's probably shot in Rocky Mountain House. You have to hold out for a hero, Dave. <laughs> Mickey Rourke is in this movie, Dave. Mickey and uh, I understand now why people thought he was so attractive in his, young, in his younger years, because I kind of get it. <laughs> I did not know that was Mickey Rourke for the longest time. I could I could well, not make that face with what I know Mickey Rourke looks like now. There's a reason for that. And I just realized, too, I don't think I've seen another Mickey Rourke movie besides this, The Wrestler, and when he was in Iron Man 2. I think those are literally the um, only movies I've seen Mickey Rourke in. Outsiders? Nope. Oh. Harley Davis, I couldn't watch that. I was too old. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in the 80s Once and early 90s time, yeah. that I look at that I, I, I know the name of. Yeah. I've never seen any of those movies he was in. He's crazy. I mean, he's mm-hmm. literally a crazy person. Yes, um, a crazy man. What's fascinating is when he started, I think a lot of people who like him know this. I mean, he was originally going to be a boxer. He was actually quite successful as a boxer, as an amateur oh, really? boxer. Yeah, before he started acting, he was 27 and 3. Which is like, he was wow. very good, but he, he was suffering like concussions. Jack LaMotta over here. Well, he was actually sparring partner to the then champion, whoever this person right. is. Uh, I don't follow boxing that closely, but he started getting concussions. And after mm. one fight where he was concussed, the doctor's like, you need to stay. I mean, we know now that that means you should just stop, but this doctor's like, you should take a year off because you're starting to act a little mm. weird. And that's when he discovered acting and, and made films like this and- uh, kind of apparently was a big deal. I again, I, I'm being a bit of a hater, but I don't really like him in this movie. But there's a quote right. that when he went to New York, he borrowed money, did one of those classic things where last shot, I'm going to spend all my money, joins the actor's studio, and apparently Ilya Kazan was like, "This is the greatest audition I've ever seen in my life." 
which is weird to think about. But he kind of blew up. But what's really interesting, after he kind of made a couple of big movies and then uh, couldn't get roles because apparently he's an asshole, he went back to boxing. (laughs) So, he started boxing in uh, 1991 or something like that. And he actually, he won eight fights. But those fights came at a cost where he broke his face and needed all the reconstructive surgery. He had more concussions. He's like basically kind of a broken man. And that's why when he made his big comeback, he does not look like this anymore because everything was shoved in. It is also probably like that perfect bit of casting because I actually do think he's phenomenal in The Wrestler. But I mean, I like wrestling number one, but also because like that is what a broken wrestler looks like when they get older. Well, you know, the other thing is when he went back to box, his entrance music as a boxer was Sweet Child of Mine. Apparently that's why Aronofsky used it for the the wrestler. (laughs) Yeah. He actually fought again in 2014. So he's kind of, he's kind of this guy that he's got that side of him, like a fighting uh, mentality. And some of the quotes, like I think when he went back to fighting in 91 or whatever was, he is quoted as saying like he felt like he had lost himself, you know, as a human being and need to prove to himself that he was still a man essentially by punching <laughs> other men in the face. So it's like totally not toxic, yeah. his mentality. No, no, all testosterone, which you can see in this movie. The weirdest role I saw, he yeah. played apparently St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> How is that even possible? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, who else are you going to pick, Dave? Come on, Mickey Rourke, number one. <laughs> A boxer playing like the most peaceful man, basically the third coming of Jesus and uh, or Buddha, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't want to watch that movie, but apparently it's good. In it. Some movie called Francesco. But we, of course, need to talk about Steve Gutenberg. What a great <laughs> example of like looking at short term versus long term. Because if it was 1991 right now, we like Steve Gutenberg, biggest star the in the greatest, world here right yeah. now, best career out of all of these actors that we're talking That's about right. here. <laughs> And now that we're in 2022, it's like, nope, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> these people had a lot longer, better careers That's and right. comebacks and all this other stuff. Yeah, there was no comeback for him. I don't know. Police Academy was Police Academy. I grew up with that movie. I mean, I don't know. I, I have not watched them in many, many no, years. Yeah. There's no way they hold up. Absolutely. Probably not. No. I would, it's like pretty lowbrow humor at the time. Yeah, I remember liking the first one as a kid. And even as a kid... Like number five and six and stuff be like, this is yeah. bad. I was this is say, not a good movie. First three, you know, when it's still fresh, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, what were the characters? Hightower and uh, what was the sound effect guy? I don't remember his- uh, A Winslow, something Winslow. Yeah. I mean, those are classic Bobcat tropes. Bobcat Goldthwait is right. in those movies. Yeah. I just find it bonkers that they just churned out those first five. It's five and five years, I think, yeah. if I remember correctly. Like those first five films are bang, 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 bang. And- Actually, we should and bring that up. To make a, they wanted to make a seventh one for like the last decade Eighth. and a half. They've Apparently, been trying. they're shooting it. Yeah, they're trying to. I don't, I don't think know. they've actually done anything. Uh, he yet. was on a he was on an interview last year saying they've already uh, mm-hmm. finished principal there, shooting or something. Like that. There was a Saturday morning cartoon, uh, and there was actually a TV series. I think that went like one or two seasons of this. So it's like it was such a big thing was, in the culture. It's amazing how much Police Academy was a big thing. We should definitely start bringing it up when we have these debates about sequels. <laughs> yeah. Because even though there's no way it holds up, this is a, a franchise that actually worked in that era, which is mm-hmm. bananas. But I think the, the other thing too, because he was in this, he was in Two Men and a Baby. Yeah, Three Men. Three, there were three men. There were three men and a baby, yeah. yeah. There were three men. And there's another one. There's another big Cocoon, one that he was in. Short so Circuit. Like, short Circuit. That's yeah. the one I'm thinking of. That's a great so movie. Like, yeah, Johnny, yeah, he's in some pretty iconic Johnny 80s Five. movies, right? Yes. In, in a short period of time. 
most bankable star in like 88 or 89 or something. I think he was labeled. It was like, it's wild to think that he was just the biggest thing. Yeah. I didn't, con- I didn't find why it fell off. I don't know if there's something with his personality. Just bad projects. Yeah. And I think he actually did take a step back. Like it, it was 90s, partly he wasn't getting roles and partly that he did want to take a break. Yeah. I was saying something about how the nineties, he did more stage work on Broadway yeah. in London. So, I mean, maybe he just decided to do that path and could never find his way back. Also, I think his shtick is very eighties, you know, this sort of, uh, friend, frenetic, anxious. Yeah. I mean, he's also was kind of the straight man in a lot of those movies too, right? Like he, mm. There's crazy people going around him or crazier people crazier. going off around him. But he's yeah. always kind of uh, accurate. <laughs> yeah. Sharp, I, I will say this. There's another show that you probably have not watched and don't want to watch, but Veronica Mars is one of my favorite TV shows oh, of right. all time. Is that Kristen Stewart? Kristen, Kristen Bell. Bell. Yeah. In the second season, Steve Gutenberg has a very large part in it as like the supporting uh, character that runs through the entire season. And it is so phenomenal because he plays with type in the first half and then very much against type <laughs> in the second half. You're like, this is Steve Gutenberg. Like, it just is so shocking to see where that goes in that second season. Like, oh, wow. I didn't realize you could go that dark. I wonder, I mean, we did talk about as well, like, uh, in, you know, in the last three years about what that line is. Like Kevin Bacon is a good example. Why did he never become a leading man? I mean, we can always distill it to he's not good looking enough, but Steve Gutenberg is not somebody who lacks talent or ability. And Michael Keaton was big in this era too. And he had to reinvent himself as a villain essentially to get back. I mean, he was Batman, you know, until Christian Bale, he was the Batman. And now Robert Pattinson is the, the Batman. No, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I won't, I won't acknowledge that yet. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what it is about Hollywood. There are always machinations that we're not aware of. And then culturally, you know, do we want to see this guy? Well, I, I think that is what makes it so fascinating to then see people like a Tom Cruise and a Tom Hanks that we've already mentioned here, who have had super lengthy careers and very much at the top of the box office or in the critics charts. The more we delve into this, like that is the anomaly. Like there's usually peaks and valleys for people, right? Where they're like super hot and then not really for like the next 20 years. So it's not that common to have people like we're at the top of our game for 40 plus years. Well, I, you know, I just realized uh, how one of the actresses we covered learn that in the 90s the one of the angles and this is probably a big thing is some of the bigger stars make their own production companies so yeah. they can make films for themselves to start i mean tom cruise is uh famous for this actually a, a more recent example of this is um uh, margot robbie. robbie right yeah uh she's actually come up with that it's like she was going up for roles and not getting them and she's like fine i'll just make my own movies then and cast me in them and so i wonder if that's part of it you know if you have business-minded stars. I mean, we talk about how there's probably no dirt on Tom Hanks, but maybe it's just this shrewd businessman. You know, mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg, same thing. You know, we, we hear this reputation that he shows up on sets. I mean, that is that is a business acumen to just be yeah. visible to everybody in the industry all the time so that when you decide to make a project and you need $200 million, everybody's like, oh yeah, that's Steven. He's a good guy. He makes good movies, right? Instead of, I haven't heard from this artistic director in 15 years and now he wants yeah. you know 40 million dollars to make an abstract film about uh, peanuts or fuck whatever so i don't know yeah some a lot of these people kind of go by the wayside i don't know much about steve gutenberg but it's uh yeah it'd be interesting for him to be revival maybe police academy 8 will will blow uh, you up you know it, <laughs> if you again fall back on the uh, my knowledge of the Simpsons, there's this entire episode called the Stonecutters. I was going to ask you. Yeah. 
<laughs> where Homer becomes part of a secret gang. And that's the lyric, right? It's like uh, all these things in world history that the Stonecutters have done. It's like, we made Steve Gutenberg a star. <laughs> like that was the joke line in 1994 when he was like past his prime. So yikes. So personal. I also think it's amazing that he wrote the Bible. All right. So the cinematography was by a guy named Peter Sova. His other top three films, as you may have heard of, all come from the 2000s, which is Push, Gangster Number no. One, and Wicker Park. Gangster Number no. One's good. This is, of course, written by Barry Levinson, directed by Barry Levinson. Uh, so we, I guess we should first talk about Barry Levinson. He was born in Baltimore in 1942. We're actually recording this on his 80th birthday, like I mentioned. After graduation, he moves to Los Angeles in the hopes of becoming an actor first. But to make ends meet, he begins writing for a bunch of variety shows. Marty Feldman, the Tim Conway show, of course, the crown jewel being the Carol Burnett show. He's well liked enough, though, that he starts to write feature films. Most notably, he has this collaboration with Mel Brooks. So he helps write the movies Silent Movie and High Anxiety. In 1979, he'd co-write Injustice for All, a film starring Al Pacino. The Metallica album. The Metallica album, that's right. And Justice, a great songwriter, honestly. <laughs> Huge metalhead. Um, no, it's this film that stars Al Pacino. He and his co-writer, uh, which was his wife at the time, Valerie Curtin, who's sisters to Jane Curtin. Oh, that's I was like thinking. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all interrelated. Uh, would be nominated for an Oscar. He did not win that year. Diner would be his follow up to that success. And it would be the first time directing a film. And you can credit Mel Brooks for that decision. So Levinson tells this story that Brooks loved hearing these stories Levinson would tell about his so-called diner guys in his youth. So Brooks encouraged Levinson to write it out as a script and for him to direct it. Specifically, he made this connection that, you know, Fellini got famous for making movies about his youth. So why not you? Uh, and of course, Brooks knew something about being a comedy writer and then jumping into directing. Levinson's goal here was to highlight the ordinary. It's also the unofficially part of what is called the Baltimore Tetralogy. So these four films that all take place in Baltimore around the same time, which is this one is the first one. And then Tin Man, Avalon and Liberty Heights. All films, honestly, that I've never heard of. I wish there was a little bit more I could go into here, but there's not really a whole lot other than what Levinson would go on to make and of course the careers of the young actors that we've already talked about i will say that one of the innovations that were maybe innovation is too strong of a word what he decided to do though in the diner scene specifically he actually filmed it like a tv show so he'd have two cameras running simultaneously while they were talking which did cause disagreements between him the camera operators and the sound team because they were like we're not going to be able to cut this like for overlap and stuff like that so like you We'll have to get this good on the first take. And especially if they're improving, how is this going to work? And he was like, whatever, we're going to make it work. It was a very Altman move for him at the time. Um, but he did not ask Robert Altman how he did those shots. So he kind of made it up himself. It's very likely this movie would never have been released. But you can thank Pauline Kael in part that it got released at all. Because she'd seen an advanced screening and loved it. Uh, MGM didn't really get it and had it shelved at that moment. Uh, because advanced audiences who had been brought in weren't all that enthusiastic about the movie. But it was Kael along with fellow critic James Wolcott who gave this impassioned plea for them to put it into theaters. Telling MGM that whether they release it or not they were going to release these rave reviews in their papers. So MGM was basically like, well, if they're going to do that anyways, we might as well roll it out. This would be nominated for one Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, but it would lose to Gandhi. That is basically the backstory to this movie. You get the feeling, you know, when you bring up that it comes from personal experience, you see that characterizations of people that he clearly knows. I just wish mm -hmm. that it had more uh, 
integrity in the way that it uh, it kind of comes together. And perhaps, yeah. you know, if he were to write a, like, not that you should, but if he were to write a sequel now when he's 80, maybe these characters have changed quite a lot. You know, one of the problems with the American dream is that the movie has to end at some point. It usually has to end at a happy ending. And so we have this presumption that if they go to this wedding, like at the end of this film and and Steven Gutenberg finally did get married and Mickey Rourke didn't die and et cetera, et cetera, that that is the way that it goes for the rest of their lives. And that is clearly not going to be the case because if Daniel Stern will yell at his wife about, you know, misarranging his records, they will fight about other things as they grow older. So- By the way, I can I, can I just mention- the idea of a sequel to this movie is hilarious to me, but sure, Hollywood is so bankrupt at this point, they probably would try and make yeah. a sequel out of this movie. But by and large, that, that whole argument that Daniel Stern does have with Ellen Barkin did remind me a lot of me talking about, or anytime I bring up the Academy Awards, it's like, who gives a shit, Kyle? No one cares. <laughs> yeah. <honestly. laughs> you, I'm just going to put this 1979 Best Picture winner in this position. It's like, how dare you? Uh, you know what I was going to bring up too? I mean, I did, uh, kind of, I mentioned this uh, strongly already, but uh, you know, I loved Ellen Barkin in this because it's interesting too, to compare her to the other female character. Which we, she doesn't even get a credit, even though she did have a mm-hmm. speaking part. That woman comes out like an animated Barbie doll. There's nothing, there's just nothing there. And Alan Barkin has that great scene where she's just sitting there like, I don't give a shit what the B side of a fucking record is. I just want to listen to music. And he's like losing his mind. I'm like, that is a great scene. I'm like, this is amazing because- Honestly, that entire conversation could be its own movie. Like honestly, that whole like conversation, like they could build up on that idea. You know what I thought was a missed opportunity is the song he's listening to in the car is- lamenting getting to fights with people about stuff. And I was like, this could have been such a great moment of reflection and and it's gone. They don't care. He just goes to see someone have sex. It's pathetic. We've all been there. Um, So some notes I wrote down here. I cannot believe this movie of all movies is has the popcorn trick in it of him putting his dick in a bag of popcorn so that a woman is going to touch it. And I was like, I cannot believe they're going here. I'm surprised that wasn't in summer of 42. Yeah, right. The guy who sings Blue Moon at the wedding, there's the old guy who's like, you were ruining this song. <laughs> this is actually a good song that is not being sung very well. You know what I just heard this morning on uh, Apple Music? Uh, Frank Ocean covered Blue Moon. Oh. It's good. Is it good? Yeah. And I was okay. like, what the fuck's going on? All right, keep going. If they're listening into what you're watching now. It's like, oh, oh, give him give Billy Ocean. Probably. Uh, this movie also, there's another movie I have not brought up yet that this movie reminded me of because of the music that plays all the time, which is American Graffiti. I thought mm. this is kind of a clear reference almost to that movie, although I think American Graffiti is better than what this movie is. Mm-hmm. And the only other one I w- wrote down here too, there's that scene where, I forget which character it is, but they can recite like a movie front oh, to back. Like yeah, they, they, they memorize the kid. movie. What the fuck is that about? Yeah. What's interesting is that my parents always tell this story when they went and watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when that movie came out in whatever that was, 78 or 79, whatever, mm-hmm. their friend, if you don't know, the Monty Python actually released that movie as an album you, that you could listen to. And so their friend had already bought it and had memorized the whole thing. So oh, he no. actually read the full movie to them before they went and saw the movie. Oh, like God. he could perform the whole yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he later became a born again evangelical Christian, and they don't talk to him. But anyway, kind of crazy. I know the movie's uh, still quotable. I grew up with that movie too. I tried to rewatch it recently, and it wasn't that easy. But now, well, it's, you can tell its age now, right? Yeah, like yeah. it looks like an old movie. I think it's still funny, although I don't know how much of an unpopular opinion it is anymore because it seems like the culture is moving that way. I think Life of Brian is a better Monty Python mm. movie. 
I think it's a better thought out, better plotted, and better and like actually better jokes. Biggest dickus. <laughs> biggest see height of comedy. <laughs> We're done here. All right, the machine has said that we have to wrap this up. So first off, critics' choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. Roger Ebert once again gave this a four out of four stars. He he loved this movie. Oh no. Wow. I apologize. He did not. He gave us three and a half stars out of four. Wow. Three and a half stars out of four. Diner is structured a lot like American Graffiti and Fellini's E. Vitaloni. It's episodic as the young men venture out for romantic and sexual adventures, practical jokes, drunken Friday evenings, and long mornings of hangovers and doubt. Some of the movie's situations seem quite implausible, but they all fit within the overall theme of fear of women. One bizarre sequence, for example, involves a young man who insists that his fiancée pass a tough quiz about pro football before he'll agree to marry her. He's serious. If she flunks, the wedding is off. The situation doesn't seem possible to me, but it's right symbolically, since what the man is really looking for in a wife is one of the guys, a woman who will agree to become an, Im- an imitation man. If the movie has a weakness, however, it, it is that it limits itself to the faithful reproduction of the speech, clothing, cars, and mores of the late 1950s, and never quite stretches to include the humanity of the characters. For all that I recognize and sympathize with these young men and their martyred wives, girlfriends, and sex symbols, I never quite believe that they were three-dimensional. It is, of course, a, a disturbing possibility that, to the degree these young men denied full personhood to women, they didn't have three-dimensional personalities. It's so fascinating to me is like how much I actually agree with this review and how much higher of a rating he gave this movie. I was going to say, like, I don't <laughs> necessarily disagree. I mean, the beginning was a little too glowing, but if you're yeah. saying that it's not fleshed out and people look paper thin, mm-hmm. why is that a three and a half out of four? This is like yeah, you think, talking think, about uh, Grease too. It's shocking. Well, I think what it's come down to here, the more that I do this and the more I do my soul searching... Just for me, I think I care about plot less than I care about characters. And I think some people don't really care about characters and they care just like literally what is happening in the movie more. And for me to really fully dial in, it's like I need to kind of understand or not even necessarily like, but like be compelled by these characters. And for me, yeah, they never felt three dimensional to me. And in some cases that can work in certain like musicals and stuff like that. You don't need a three dimensional character. They're just there to be a set dressing yeah. but for this i think to fully work you do or else i don't think that the drama really works uh, you know i just realized like swingers probably inf- influenced by this yeah. film so much but they weren't afraid to dirty everybody up yeah yeah, yeah. right and you know it's you, true that day of reckoning when vince von is kind of sitting there thinking uh the girl's flirting with him one last time i mean that's that's just that one little push just make it so that these people remain gross and then you have your third dimension but uh, they couldn't do it. So. I love their music. Pauline Kael, like I said, was instrumental in making this film be released in the first place. Uh, her review is, A wonderful movie set in Baltimore around Christmas of 1959. A fluctuating group of five or six young men in their early 20s hang out together. They've known each other since high school, and though they're moving in different directions, they still cling to their late-night bull sessions at the diner where, magically, they always seem to have plenty to talk about. It's like a comedy club. They take off from each other, and their conversations are all overlapping jokes that are funny without punchlines. Conversations may roll on all night, and they can sound worldly and sharp, but when these boys are out with girls, they're nervous, constricted, fraudulent, half-crazy. Written directed by Barry Levinson, Diner provides a look at middle-class relations between the sexes just before the sexual revolution. At a time when people still laughed, albeit uneasily, at the gulf between men and women. 
It isn't remarkable visually, but it features some of the best young actors in the country. I will say this too. This is labeled as a comedy, and I don't really understand why. There's a couple like funny things that are said, but overall, I don't really think there's funny jokes that happen no. in this movie. I mean, the uh, funny repartee. But yeah. uh, can we just add, not just that the women were paper thin, but how many uh, subservient black people were floating around this film? What the I know. fuck? It's like total like middle upper class when they walk in and the maid is just cleaning yeah. and no one talks to her. I'm like, this is a bit weird. Yeah, in a little off-putting. This is a movie that champions toxic masculinity because of the ending. You know, I, that whole scene when, uh, what's what's his name? Tim Daly comes out of theater and just punches a dude randomly because he heard him in baseball when they were like 16. And everybody's yeah, like, so yeah, weird. that's the way you do it. I'm like, that's what a man does. Yeah. What yeah. what was that about? And why do we think that's cool? Right. Uh, if I'm 15, if I'm a 15 year old viewer, a boy, a heterosexual 15 year old boy who plays sports, I'm going to be like, yeah, you got to fucking hit him in the face. But uh, no, you don't. And there's nothing that comes yeah, out of that. but otherwise you might be a gay Dave. So I don't know. <laughs> like you kind of have to why, show dominance. Why are these things in the story? I don't understand. Yeah, it's it's weird. I just think, yeah, it, the whole politics about this movie are kind of weird and, and dated. That's a good segue here, though, to answer the question we always ask, which is, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? No. I, I don't think so. Cultural relevance, I mean, we've already named some films that may have uh, been influenced by it, but I, I don't think so. I, I, I think this is a skip. I don't think anybody needs to watch this. Even if you're a Barry Levinson fan, I don't understand why this would hold up. I'm a little bit questioning. Like, I don't want to be so over the top and say, I cannot understand why anyone would like this right, movie. Right. I think there are things that people would enjoy about this, but like, I'm kind of there with you. I'm a no and no. I don't really think it holds up. I think other movies have done this better and they hold bigger cultural influence and relevance nowadays so yeah i I don't think in another 40 years if anyone's going to be talking about diner yeah and if you're a fan of the actors because there's a lot of uh actors in this i mean you know is this a good mickey rourke to watch i mean if you're a mickey rourke fan maybe i don't know Mm -hmm. this is not a good kevin bacon film if you're a gutenberg fan you just watch police academies one through seven Uh, I don't know, right? It's weird. <laughs> Daniel Stern, you should watch Home Alone. The, the, yeah. They're in I know, this. So everyone else had better movies that you can watch out of this. Yeah. So. so we mentioned this before, just like MASH, there was a TV show that was made out of this concept. It lasted like one season. I don't. I think it was only a few episodes, actually. It's called Happy Days. But it did Days bring or... Paul Reiser back. He's the only person from the movie that was in the TV show. And it had Michael Madsen and James Spader wow. in, the, in other roles. There was also a musical made out of Diner in 2015. Yikes. Book by Mr. Levinson himself with music and lyrics by do you want to give a guess dave who the music and lyrics were by i don't know cheryl crow oh wow that's not good yeah (laughs) (laughs) i haven't seen it but that's that can't be good right Yeah. yeah Okay, well, we do need to rate this film. But before we do, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to kyleanddavevsthemachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle kdvstm. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini-review of the film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month, something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you rate Diner? I think even though I didn't like watching it, there are some redeeming pieces of this. And so I'm going to go with the two. 
there are uh, like Alan Barkin's fun, and I think there are some parts if you cut out things to demonstrate some interesting shots from an up and coming director. Some of those like flippant conversational scenes are actually kind of fun. Uh, just I didn't like the movie overall, so I don't hate it. I I, I should have started off a little softer, but fuck it. This doesn't always happen, but. It's not like I actually watched this movie over a week ago, and I'm only talking about it now. <laughs> On my first watch, my instinct was to give it a three. But over the last week, not that we've spent a week, but over the last week, I've really, f- I don't know, my opinion has kind of drastically gone down a bit. So I've ended with a 2.5. I'm going to give it a 2.5. A drastic here. drop drastic. is a 0.5. <laughs> So that is going to average to <laughs> 2.25. We'll actually round down to a 2 when we actually put it onto our letterbox list. It does not tie for anything, so it's going to go directly into the list here at our new number 10 position. It won't stay in the bottom. Uh, two is no. still fairly high. I think we'll watch worse movies. I'm sure of it. Yeah, we, we have are, six Police Academy movies to watch. We so. are uh, heading into the horror section, so... <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay, well, let's find out what we're going to watch next week here. I'm going to push this button. Oh, this is exciting here, Dave, because this is a movie whose name has become like a phrase that I have never seen. We're going to watch Sophie's Choice. Oh, a lighthearted comedy. <laughs> a lighthearted comedy that uh, I think Meryl Streep wins her second Academy oh, Award. I thought it was her for... first. What's her first Oscar? Didn't she win for the, the Deer Hunter? She was... What? Hold on. Hold on. I'm I'm crazy. Meryl Streep, I didn't even know she was in The Deer Hunter. What? I'm crazy. Acting credits and awards. Oh, no. She was she was nominated for The Deer Hunter, but uh, didn't win. Kramer Her first Kramer. win was for Kramer versus Kramer. That's what she won for. She was in The Deer Hunter? Who is she in The Deer Hunter? The wife? She actually plays the deer. I don't remember. What? Yeah, I think she's the wife of someone. Of De Niro? Listen, wait till we get to 1978, and then we'll talk about the deer hunter, okay? I have to watch That's that. what we're going to do then. Here, have this, uh, I made these eggs here for you, Dave. Just eggs. Little, little oh, wow. Runny, runny eggs. Oh, gosh. Like, uh, sunny side up and poorly cooked, or like, over super easy? Well, they are yellow at the top, so, I okay. guess. Gordon Ramsay does this thing where he puts, uh, butter in the pan, and then he bastes the butter on the top. For, oh, a, that'd be good. for a sunny side up. This actually looks just like you poured a raw egg on a plate. So that's disgusting. Smells a little off. Yummy. Yummy, yummy, yummy. The amount of stuff you don't get could fill the Nile.